Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming back. Always a pleasure, my brother. Also returning to the show today is Trig Olson, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, president of Viking Strategies, LLC, and a real-life freedom fighter joining us from Washington, D.C. Trigby, thanks for coming back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be here. So guys, for today's show, I want to talk about how we at The Lincoln Project see the political landscape and why others are making mistakes when they think it's normal, as well as how we see the next 10 months before Election Day. But first, guys, I want to talk about political power in America today. Who has it, how they use it, and how it got this way. And Trigby, this is something you and I were talking about yesterday in the form of Tucker Carlson. And in your expertise with authoritarian movements, I like to call it sort of the political Jenga game, which is Tucker belongs to no political party as far as we know. I don't even think he's a Republican. He has not ever held political office, does not hold political office, doesn't appear to want to hold political office, doesn't have a campaign committee or a PAC, yet he's able to go on the air and espouse anti-vaccine stuff, totally dismantle a United States senator in the form of Ted Cruz. He's going to Hungary next week for some sort of, you know, fascistic vacation. I don't know. So talk to me about, as democracies are in peril, what it means to see these people who have no other power other than proximity to the leader or the movement. I don't think you can psychoanalyze Tucker Carlson, right? Like he's been everywhere within the media landscape. He was on MSNBC. Now he's gone full populist nationalist. You know, he has a huge microphone and he's peddling extremism. He talks in the language of extremism. He plays on distress with cognitively simplistic conspiratorial answers to things. If you watch him, he plays hard to his audience. We know the truth the overconfidence, and he tries to breed intolerance. I think what's more dangerous, and I happened to go and watch a couple of weeks back that three-part series on Fox Nation, but what's a little bit troubling is if you look at what's going on with Tucker and the streaming stuff, he's going full-on attempt to radicalize. You know, There's need, narrative, and network that he's building with that. That's a real problem. And you know, Rick, you had a great comment yesterday about his basically parroting Russian talking points, there's a classic element of Lisnea information that goes on in this entire thing. It's false information with a purpose. You know, Tucker's power at Fox, it is explicitly political power. It is explicitly the ability to make or break candidates. I mean, I presume that right now Ron DeSantis is doing everything he can to get into Tucker's good graces. By the way, folks, I don't know if you know this or not, Tucker is a Florida resident. Tucker lives in Florida. He does his show out of a studio down in like the Naples area. As I say to people all the time, Florida is becoming the Republican Party like in almost every capacity. 
But I mean, Rick, there's the Tucker Carlson piece. When we talk about power, again, I mentioned Ted Cruz. So Ted Cruz, you know, the day before the January 6th anniversary goes on, calls it a terrorist attack. The night of the 6th, he has to go on Fox News as the supplicant at the throne of Tucker Carlson. As Trigby said in our conversation yesterday, can you ever imagine Lyndon Baines Johnson or Howard Baker going on a television show and basically laying himself out to apologize and to repudiate his own words before some goofball talking head? Can you imagine even Harry Reid doing that? I mean, you, you just can't. And look, it is part of this authoritarian movement that they have weaponized all these media platforms in the same way the early Soviet propaganda efforts and the early German propaganda efforts radicalized and weaponized newspapers and radio. And this historic arc of bad guys exploiting technology early, you can count on two groups to exploit new technology quickly, pornography and fascism. You know, I won't be surprised if we get Fox After Dark <laughs> with your host, Kimberly Guilfoy, with the hottest stories of MAGA on MAGA action. <laughs> Harkening back to Cinemax of many years ago. But Trigby, there's Tucker on Fox, but there's also Steve Bannon, who speaks to a very large audience, who, whereas Tucker might be willing to push Russian talking points and belittle and demean United States senators, Bannon is full on into like the sedition space. He's full in on tearing down the Republic and he seems totally fine with that. And no one in any sort of law enforcement other than his indictment for, you know, defying a subpoena has at this point done anything about it. And he seems to be one who's trying to literally weaponize extremism in the form of violence when he was on the steps of the federal courthouse after his indictment said, you know, we're going to tear down this regime. I mean, these are words of conflict and violence. So I would describe it this way. You know, Tucker Carlson, for the most part in Fox News, outside the news division, they traffic and profit off of extremism, overconfidence of your audience and their intolerance towards those who don't share the cognitively simplistic answers. That's really about extremism, and that's what their business model is built on. And, you know, it's an incredibly profitable business model. Bannon's is different. I mean, Bannon's is built on full-on radicalization. So it's different because Bannon skirts the line, and it's further on that bell curve of what's not normal within a democracy. Democracies are supposed to be about consensus and partisanship and occasional extremism you know, that either gets pushed out of the system or becomes partisan and consensus. Think universal suffrage. Bannon operates one step beyond extremism and radicalization. You know, historically in the United States, there have been occasions, McCarthy and others, where it's been extremism to radicalization. But Bannon's business model is full-on radicalization. And the fact, what's scary about Bannon is the fact that you have so-called credible elected leaders like Elise Stefanik going on that show, right? Like that tells you how far the crazy within the Republican Party has gotten. And it's really a chicken or egg argument whether the base drives the electeds or the electeds drive the base. Well, I mean, I think, Rick, this is one thing that I think is maybe not unique in the history of authoritarian movements is that, you know, at the top, you still have Donald Trump or you have Tucker or you have Bannon, but there's also that sewer of weirdo ugliness, conspiracy theory stuff that's on 4chan and 8chan and rumble that percolates up 
And so one day it starts at the top and the flywheel spins one way, and the other day it starts at the bottom and the flywheel spins the other way. Right. The feeder mechanism of the far right, it flows both ways. Part of it is the trolling and the conspiracy stuff and the really dark racial stuff comes out of 8chan, 4chan, Discord servers out there for all kinds of different white gnats and everything else. That stuff bubbles up and it goes to the D-tier, Ace of Spades, Gateway Pundit, alt-right, white nationalist sites. Then it gets laundered a little bit. So in a few days, it's on the Federalist. Then it gets laundered to Fox. That becomes a talking point on Fox. And then it goes to your uncle's Facebook page. Well, and Shrigby, I mean, when Trump was still on Twitter, there were numerous examples where something like Rick is describing had bubbled up into his consciousness or maybe the caddy, Dan Scavino, his consciousness or somebody had sent it to them, where now it's not just in 4chan, 8chan or, or Discord, but now however many millions of followers Donald Trump has in the news media and everything else. I mean, I think all of that's part of it. I also think there's a loop. What happens is as that stuff percolates, as Rick was describing it, what also happens is, you know, people get together at Ezekiel Lutheran Church in my hometown and they have coffee and donuts after church and they start talking politics or the Green Bay Packers, hopefully is a diversion now. But what happens is they end up repeating, well, I heard that critical race theory is being taught in lots of places, right? And then it gets normalized because, well, I didn't hear that from Tucker Carlson. I don't watch it. I didn't hear it on Facebook. My friend Shirley told me that at church. How many Shirleys do you think there are at the Ezekiel Lutheran Church? Uh, Just as Probably 30. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we have the communications mechanisms and now we have Tucker, we have Bannon, we have Trump, right? Who's still very much there. I mean, no one, I think, would call him classically intelligent either. But here you are. He is single-handedly determined how the Republican Party is going to act, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, which is turned on its head. You know, he is single-handedly likely to choose the nominee in the Ohio Senate race, the Georgia Senate race, the Arizona Senate race, if he has anything to say about it. But he holds no other power. He sits in the bridal suite. I mean, most presidents leave and their power dissipates with them. Trump's influence, I would argue, has grown since he left. Well, this is classic autocrat. You remember when Putin left office? You know, he'd served his two terms. Dmitry Medved came in. And does anybody think that Putin still wasn't pulling the strings? You look at what happened in Kazakhstan recently. You know, you had the new guy came in. The Nazarbayev family was still running the show. I mean, illiberal verticals, that's just how they work. And Donald Trump, he still is the power behind the scenes running a lot of the Republican Party, whether Mitch McConnell is giving him the silent treatment or Kevin McCarthy is giving him some other treatment. But let me ask you about this power dynamic. And I'm just finishing, guys, a book by Ruth Ben-Gad, who's been a guest on this show, Strongman. It is eminently readable. It's eminently understandable. It's not going to take you down a bunch of stuff that's like political philosophy. It's, it's a terrific book. But Rick, does this movement as it is does it survive without the Donald Trump? Because we're seeing the fight right now between him and DeSantis. All these other goons want to be the heir apparent, whether or not it's Cotton or Hawley or Cruz. Mm -hmm. Or Stefanik. Or Stefanik. But they're all pretenders. None of them really believe this shit. They're doing it because they think it's an easy path. Right. If anybody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, there's no way Donald Trump can ever get the 24 nomination, may I refer you to the disastrous period of 2015 and 2016? 
where the national failure of imagination on the Republican side of everybody who thought they would be the one, the last one standing, they'd be the last one in the ring with Trump and they'd take him out because he wasn't a real conservative. And to give our Democratic friends a little bit of tough love here, after the campaign was over, a, a senior Hillary person said to me, oh my God, we thought we could beat him. He thought it'd be the easy one. If anybody thinks that Donald Trump is not going to go out there and throw Ron DeSantis through a wood chipper and dance in the goop when he's done, they're mistaken. The base still loves Trump. And no matter how much this wishful thinking among people on the right and the left that Trump has done, he's the former guy, all that, they don't understand the power of a personality cult and the hold that he still has over his people. And as much as we mock Trump rightly and richly, as much as we you know, talk about his various infirmities, an enormous number of, he still has vast name ID. He still has enormous political power. And he has more resources than any of these other guys combined. And look, at the end of the day, Rupert Murdoch has put Trump on timeout for a couple of years. He's been unhappy with Trump for a couple of years. But at the end of the day, some point when Trump announces, they're going to realize the giant eyeball magnet and click magnet that Trump is once again, and they will go back to the well and they will start covering his every fart. And you will end up with the same thing that happened the last time. He will be this enormously powerful figure on the right that you cannot get away from. And the movement will shape itself around him. And that's why Bannon loves the guy. He's malleable. Trump doesn't believe anything except Trump. But the opportunists and the various like bottom feeders following this sewage barge of a former president, they will continue to hover around and they'll try to convert on that. And we should be grateful for that, Reed, on one level, because this is a guy, if I may quote the documentary Predator, if it bleeds, we can kill it. This is a guy who is a very dangerous figure, but he's explicable. I am much more concerned about a Ron DeSantis or a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley or an Elise Stefanik who comes out and says, oh, you know, I'm not that guy. I went to Harvard. I'm no fascist. I went to Harvard and wraps the sort of Ivy League meritocracy shield around themselves and still pursues policies and programs that are just as dangerous as Trump. But Trigby, let me ask a question about that, because if you read back on all these authoritarians and really it's the last century or so. Whether it's Pinochet or Franco or Mussolini or Hitler or Gaddafi, whoever it is these guys are, like they don't really trust anybody but their own families. There's no normal line of succession. You know, George W. Bush ran for president in 2000, 2004, then McCain, then Romney. Now we got Trump, like sort of sent the train off the tracks. Are any of the people that Rick named able to engender that MAGA sort of cult-like belief that Trump had? Because it's all going to be an act. Trump really does it. To Rick's point, he doesn't know what the hell he's going to say five seconds before he says it, but he believes it when it comes out of his mouth. I think what we have to realize if we back up just a bit, right? So fairness doctrine gets removed. Talk radio occurs. Fox News eventually happens. You had a kind of a coexisting of the two between elected Republicans and the entertainment conservative outrage complex. They needed each other. They used each other. Trump comes along and Trump personified the dialect that was in people's cars. It was in people's living rooms every night of extremism. He personified it. And basically, they created the monster and then he came and politicized it and personified it. 
And therein lies the issue for others trying to take it over. And therein lies the issue for Fox, right? Because Trump has already established himself as that. He doesn't need Fox as bad as all the rest of them need Trump or Fox, right? And even if you look at, I have a strategist friend who's convinced Tucker's going to run for president. But here's the problem. He loses his platform. Trump would eat his shorts because Tucker loses his platform the moment he runs because his platform is dependent on being in people's living rooms every night, whereas Donald Trump doesn't have to be dependent on that. All the rest of them are dependent and thereby they're dependent on Trump, including Fox, because he politicized it and personified it. So I'm going to press you both. Does this movement continue as it is without Trump sitting at the top of it? I think it gets worse. I think it gets worse, too. It's going to be a lot easier for the quote unquote respectable parts of the conservative media sphere to go out and say, Ron DeSantis's proposal, which may be exactly identical to some crazy shit Steve Bannon would have come up with, is fine for restricting voting rights. Just, you know, arguing to just pick that as random. It's fine because he's Ron DeSantis. He's not as crude and weird and off kilter and strange as Trump is. What the hell is wrong with the Ivy League is a question I ask myself rather frequently because you've got Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, Elise Stefanik. These people have all come out of these things from the meritocracy. And you're not supposed to be, you know, if you come out of that world, there's a certain social coding in this country that means you're not a fascist, you're not a crazy person. Well, unfortunately, those people went through that same meritocracy and they've come out of it as crazy people and proto-fascists on a good day. I mean, that's a whole show in itself, but is it, to use a word that can get overused, is it a belief that somehow this is due to them, that they are in fact the ruling class? And re regardless of what road you take to get there, because they've been to these places, because these places tell them they're the elite, Mark Zuckerberg's the same goddamn way, that somehow this is owed to them. It's theirs for the taking, maybe is a better way to put it. Right. It's easy to categorize the Republican Party to look at the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Jordans and the Andy Biggs and Mo Brookses and the sort of the edge cases and say, oh, not our kind, dear. They're a different sort than we are. And Hawley and Cruz and DeSantis and Stefanik and the rest, they're going to consistently play that. Well, I went to an Ivy League school. I'm approaching this because I did the work. I came to this honestly. I have all the bona fides that are required to have you know, be treated as a serious person in our society. And they're going to hack that system to destroy that system. But that's classic evolution of these things, right? When autocratic leaders rise up within a democracy, the fringes are the first people to back them. And Steve Bannon and, and Mike Lindell and all these people are fringe, right? But the dangerous part is, is that non-fringe starts to accept the fringe because the fringe has risen to power. And we've seen that in the Republican Party. And you're right, Rick, Rupert and Fox have put Trump in a penalty box maybe for a bit. But in truth, they need him more than he needs them. And it's still in their interest to gravitate towards the audience. It becomes audience driven. They try and give the audience what they want. And that said, I do think DirecTV really did the right thing and deserves accolades for doing it by taking OANN off. And their parent company deserves accolades. They all deserve accolades for that.
because that was a natural pull. Now, what will be interesting is, does somebody try and come in and fill that hole in the market? You know, it's a good segue to talk about that, too, because when that news broke, now you see online that the OANN hosts directly are saying, if you have dirt on the chairman of AT&T, who either still owns a part of DirecTV or owns all of them, I'm not sure, like, send it to me, you know, we'll use it. Remember, guys, when we were going after AT&T for the OANN stuff, we were saying, call AT&T, switch your service, make it an economic thing, right? Like, show your belief in democracy by saying, I'm not going to financially support people who support fascism. This is a different deal. The same thing happened last week with Dan Bongino when YouTube suspended him. He, you know, went after Google and Alphabet, their parent company, and said, you have no idea what you're in for. You don't know what you're up against. You don't know what my people are going to do. It's always very overt threats very quickly, which I think that a lot of people, you know, starting with Facebook, right, that's what they had hoped to avoid all those years was the trolls coming after them in force. Of course, Facebook has become the cesspool, but AT&T slash DirecTV and YouTube said, you know, we're going to take a stand. And remember, it's freaking Google. It's freaking AT&T, right? Like these are not mom and pop cell phone stores in the middle of the mall. I mean, Google can literally change whether or not your website ever appears on the Internet. Correct. <laughs> right? I mean, Correct. this is a big deal. But it's a good example of, and I've used this line from Yellowstone before, and I'm sorry I'm using it again, is when the woman says, I don't want trouble, and Beth Dutton says, you do want trouble. What you don't want is resistance. That's exactly right. I mean, it's classic zero sum. What those OANN reporters are doing, the difference between approaches is one was win-win. You're a consumer, demonstrate what you think. And leveraging that is a win-win proposition. Is there a threat behind it? Well, there's a consequence behind it. It's carrot and stick. Whereas the other is classic zero sum. I want dirt on the CEO. We're going to wreck your life, right? That's zero sum, illiberal autocrat maneuver. And so companies, I think at the end of the day, they've got to coalesce around what do we stand for as an organization beyond the profit and whatever we make? It's one thing to say, do no evil, but you have to live, do no evil. We saw that too with Toyota last summer, remember? You know, we said, just if you're going to buy a Toyota, just, you know, here's what you're paying for. And they quit within six hours. It took them six hours to say, okay, we won't do it anymore. But Toyota feels better and looks better. People are happy to buy their RAV4s, right? Like everybody gets what they want. And frankly, Toyota saves a little money in the bargain. All right, guys, I want to turn to, if we've gone from one side of the American political spectrum, which is dark and scary, I want to go now to the land of fairy tales and unicorns. And that is the American centrist. You know, I think you guys have heard, like I spent two or three years in this sort of independent reform space before we started the Lincoln Project. And in all that time, centrism, moderation, all this stuff. These were key words. And I think there was a group out there who did a survey. And when they got back, they were shocked because 2% of the respondents considered themselves centrists. No one's a goddamn centrist. But today, as we're recording this, there's a group out there called No Labels, which has raised gobs and gobs of money to protect and promote moderate Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. That in and of itself, not a bad thing. All six of them that are left. This morning, though, Rick, they crossed some weird line, and I'm not sure why they did it. 
but in a PDF they put out that was going through some survey results. Of why they oppose the voting rights bills. Of why they oppose the voting rights bills, of why they believe that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema deserve all of our support. They said that Joe Biden's pro-democracy speech in Atlanta last week was as incendiary and free of truth as any speech Donald Trump. Of Trump's big lie, right. which blew me away because, look, Joe Biden gave a speech about voting rights where he called down some fire on people who are trying to turn back the clock. And if no labels or other groups like them can't understand the importance of the long arc bending journey of civil rights and voting rights in this country and just what it means, then they shouldn't be in public life. But if they believe that that speech by Joe Biden was in any way equivalent to Donald Trump seeking to overthrow a legitimate and free and fair election in 2020 and then ordering people as part of a broad conspiracy to try to overthrow the government both through legal means and through an invasion of the U.S. Capitol. I mean, this is why, Reed, I wake up almost every day and go, thank God I don't live in Washington. Thank God I'm not in that goddamn hellhole. It's like the South Park episode where they're smelling their own farts. That idea that they're going to hold to this, like we're going to be both sides right up the middle. The proverbial line about the middle is a yellow line with roadkill on it. So, Trigvi, you and I have talked about this at length, even on this show, is you know, understanding the fight we're in. They're either ignorant or intentionally misunderstanding and misallocating like where we are in the world in American politics today. That somehow this is all normal, that if we just all got along, that everything would be fine, that there's an equivalency between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill. And what we need is unity. Like we all believe in unity. We'd all rather have unity and compromise, but that's not where we are. Here's the thing about voting rights, right? For a democracy to work, it's a win-win proposition. It requires both sides to compromise some. But compromise has to be seen within the context. To Rick's point, you have pieces of the right that want to roll back voting rights in ways that we haven't had these discussions since the 60s. So that's a little bit different than what Joe Biden was talking about. We have to be able to find a common ground of we're going to agree on these are the litmus tests for voting. We ultimately decided at some point that, you know, not just white landowning men would have a right to vote. There's got to be consensus, particularly around voting, because democracies fail when there's a lack of faith in elections, because that's the win-win. Governing is zero sum. But, you know, Rick, to think about Biden's speech, because that's what they called out, Dick Durbin, who's, I believe, the majority whip Democratic senator from Illinois, said that he thought that Biden went too far in his remarks. Jen Psaki was asked that question. I don't even think it was by Peter Ducey. I think it was actually asked by a real reporter whether or not she thought that Biden's remarks had gone too far, were too incendiary. So there's the no labels crew, but they hang out with like the mainstream media crew. It's like the almost seven years of Donald Trump didn't exist. And somehow now, because Donald Trump was a Republican and, and Joe Biden's a Democrat, they're equivalent. And the things they say and do are equivalent when they're not. But, you know, to your point, Rick, about like the crucible of the beltway, like not allowing, you know, any common sense to get through, like they're not the same thing. And yet this is where we are. That to me is the most puzzling element of this in some ways. Our national media, they are not stupid people as a rule. But there is a cultural bias to say, 
you know, the process of DC is the story, not the intent. And so this idea that they have to, they're like, we have to be just as tough on Biden because now he's the president, as opposed to people who are literally trying to end this republic, who are trying to end our system of government in this country. It's one of those things where, you know, William Shire wrote a lot about his time in Nazi Germany before the war, and no one thinks it's going to come for them. Everyone thinks it's just, eh, it's just politics as usual. No big deal. No big deal. We're going to move on. It's a small thing. It's not a crisis. And unfortunately, the press in D.C. thinks, okay, this is just going to be another political year. Nothing will change. It's just the same old R&D fight, just with a little more color. But it's not. It is 100% not the same fight as business as usual. It's not what everybody has you know, come to expect over the last 100 years of partisan bickering in D.C. It is consequential and existential. If the bad guys decide, if they're triumphant in these states in 22 and 24, we will not have elections as we recognize them today. It will look like the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, where the dear leader gets 104% of the vote every two years. And the only people that are able to win a seat belong to the dear leader's party. Well, and here's the thing, Rick. It isn't just we won't have politics as we know it. And this is what journalists in D.C. and journalists in general don't get. We won't have journalism as we know it. We already have reporters who are succumbing to some of the illiberal tactics that get utilized, right? Like we all know reporters who will tell you behind the scenes what it was like to have a MAGA rally screaming at them or what they got in the mail anonymously when they got, you know, doxxed and had their home addresses put out, right? Like really ugly shit. Part of this is though, because it's a totally different game, right? Reporters have gone to school. You know, you go to Northwestern or Columbia School of Journalism, you're taught to cover within the game we know, not the game that we're forced to play. And so if you look at some of the reporters who've done some of the best reporting about it, quite honestly, they're ones who've actually spent time reporting from autocratic places. You know, they tend to reside in big news organizations because the New York Times or the major networks have bureaus in Moscow or Beijing. So they've interacted with reporters who've been covering in those places. You know, there's a whole set of rules that reporters kind of need to understand. And that begins with there is no moral equivalence between those who are playing the game we know and love democracy, as Joe Biden is, versus those who are playing a zero sum illiberal game like the seditionists or Donald Trump. But isn't this the big mistake? whether or not it's no labels or these reporters, which is, we'll always be okay. We'll be fine. No matter what happens, either we've been down the line enough, we've been benign enough, we've been innocuous enough, or we have relationships enough with the centers of power that they won't do anything to us, they won't do anything to our publications, they won't do anything to our businesses, and then voila, there's somebody sitting in the White House press office every morning who's typing out what the headline is going to be and taking it to the press room. Right. Like, here's what you guys are going to write today. Rule number one of dealing with autocrats. And I have, you know, a piece on the seven rules, as you guys know, that's coming up next week. Rule number one is play the game you're in. That applies to journalists as much as it applies to politicians. But again, we see that there's that whole like, well, you know, if I'm willing to believe that that is the world we're in, Trigby, then am I going to get that quote out of McConnell's office? You know, is my source in McCarthy's world really going to talk to me? Oh, I think it's deeper than that. Will I get invited to the birthday party of the guy who, you know, or the gal who works in somebody's office? I don't think I ever got invited to the birthday parties in the first place. So maybe that's why I don't 
worry about them so much. You're fun at parties, Reed. That's what everybody has always said. Boy, that Reed, he is fun at parties. So guys, like, where do you see, like, we've got 10-ish months till election day? Like, what's this world looking like? What do you think? I'm not looking for predictions, but, you know, Trigvi, it does seem like this last few days, maybe it's in the wake of January 6th, there has been a ratcheting up of, you know, Trump's been out there, Tucker's been on fire, you know, Russia's doing what it does. It just seems like the temperature on everything has risen several degrees in just the last couple of weeks. Does that continue between now and Election Day? Yeah, I think if you see what's going on with Russians and Ukraine, you know, you have to recognize it's all part of the same game. It's the zero sum game of trying to take actions to influence others' actions. I think Ukraine is something we ought to pay more attention to as an organization and as a country, because you are seeing, and Trig, you're the expert on this, we're seeing people like Tucker and a growing number of Republican leaders not just parroting the Putin talking points, but overtly siding with Russia on these things. Yeah, I mean, your tweet lit him up. And, you know, if people didn't see Tucker comparing Mexico to Ukraine, it was outrageous, absolutely outrageous. You know, I talked to Alex Vimman today, and he just said, look, it's so fundamental and it's so obvious that this is a moment where Putin sees that he can destroy NATO, which has been his highest possible goal for forever. The benefit America has derived from NATO and from a stable democratic Western Europe is incalculable. You know, people say, I don't want my kids to grow up or my grandkids to grow up in a world where America is in a democracy. And we're seeing what happens when America is as divided as it is. If, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, before Trump descended down the elevator, I don't think you'd see Putin making this play. And that's what's so egregious and, quite frankly, fucking outrageous about what Tucker was doing. Like, it's playing right into the hands of that guy. And literally, it's playing with the lives of lots of Ukrainians and, and Russian troops who really, on an individual level, don't have a beef with Ukrainians. They have a long history together. But, you know, read to your question moving forward. We have 10 months till the election. We have... 35 months until the next transition of presidential power in the United States. And we either start engaging full throttle now, as the Lincoln Project is, and coming together by using proven tactics and strategies for dealing with the forces that we are, or we're going to see not just American politics, but I think we're going to see a lot more things like what's happening with Ukraine and chaos descending around the world. You know, Trigby, I think you noted, you know, about the ability to vote. But we're also facing in places like Georgia, and it will be more before the end of this legislative season, of people, you know, like in Georgia, setting up things to change the vote after the fact. And you saw Trump in a video say, it doesn't matter how many people votes, it only matters who counts them. Who said that famously? 99 years ago, Joe Stalin, friendly Uncle Joe Stalin of the three million person Ukrainian famine and gulags and everything else, right? The great purges. I mean, they are doing these things in the light of day. And I think to your point, Trigby, that's right, which is it's not just about making sure that everybody who wants to cast a ballot can freely, fairly and safely do so, but also understanding that when the time comes you know, we better have a close eye and understand who it is these people that are going to be making these decisions in places like Georgia and Fulton County. Who are they? Where did they come from? Who chose them? 
Yeah, and when Brad Ratzinger or Kinzinger or whoever is threatened, and this is true even now when you see these OANN guys saying we're going to threaten the CEO of AT&T for doing the right thing, everybody has to rally because their fight is everyone's fight who cares about democracy. And listen, I mean, Rick, that's the one thing I think people just, you know, think this is like PR when we say this, but we will work with anyone who's on the side of pro-democracy. And I guess to bring it home, there is no middle ground in this. You're either pro-democracy or you're not. And being pro-democracy means that you're pro-democracy all the time, not when it's just convenient for you. Yeah. And there are a lot of people, I think, who have gotten a little disheartened in the last year because they don't see democracy on the march. They see it on retreat. And I have to say, you know, there are a lot of things that individuals can do, a lot of things that groups can do if they come together and form basically, you know, a union of people willing to fight this fight. You know, beating Donald Trump in 2020, I think we all had a moment where we're like, okay, now we can go beat our swords into plowshares. Reed can raise goats. I can fix old airplanes. You know, we could go do things that, you know, we, we put off for five years. Well, none of us can do that. And honestly, the country can't do that because we are in this fight and the other side is counting on the pro-democracy forces to be tired and scared and exhausted and disheartened and beaten down. And that's why we take a kind of fairly, fairly aggressive tone sometimes to remind people, you know, you can fight and you must fight. And honestly, the fight against bad people is personally and morally satisfying in ways that a lot of people don't really realize. Well, and Trigby, I would say this in closing, as you know, as you've seen both personally and history teaches us, if the bad guys take over, the badness we've already seen accelerates to light speed and they move fast because at that point, then it's all consolidation and the undoing of it is not days or weeks or months, but years and often with terrible tragedy in between. They move quickly from trying to divide to destroying, and that will be the modus operandi and it will be across all elements of society. And folks, that's why all of you who listen, 1.2 million a month of you that listen, you know, that's why you guys are so key to this, right? And we'll have a lot more to share with how you can get actively involved in very specific ways in your areas and around the country. And we look forward to talking to you about that. Trigby, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Trigvi Olson, T-R-Y-G-V-E-O-L-S-O-N. And they can also find on the Faith or Fear YouTube channel links to a bunch of presentations that I've been doing for all kinds of audiences. Which are great, folks, and you really ought to take a look at those. Yeah, a masterclass in democracy for sure. And Rick Wilson, where can we find you? I am at the Rick Wilson on Twitter. Speaking of masterclasses, I'm going to be teaching a masterclass on the 26th of January, and there will be information posted about that on the Twitter feed of the Lincoln Project and on my Twitter feed. We look forward to it. As always, gang, you can find me at Reed Galen, Trigby, Rick. We'll see you next time. And everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup. 
including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.